Tonight I'd like to have you turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 2. Tonight we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 26 in complete the second chapter. Solomon, the son of David and king of Israel, a man that uh, when asked of the Lord what he would want, asked for God's wisdom, and God granted him that wisdom. Along with that wisdom, God gave him also riches. And so, for a good portion of Solomon's life, he acted upon the wisdom of God, and he served the Lord with that wisdom. And that wisdom would remain with him throughout all of his life. <clears throat> but there came a time in Solomon's life when he began to turn to the things that he began to see under the sun. And he looked at wisdom now in a little bit of a different light, as we read in, in some verses in chapter 1, where he begins actually by saying, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Everything is worthless under the sun without God. But he also could see the challenges of having wisdom and the challenges of also having riches. The uh, beginning of chapter 2 actually was, was a, a statement by Solomon himself that was dealing with the poverty of riches. Because there were so many people, and there still are to this day, people that uh, say that they would be satisfied with a lot of riches and then they would get them and not be satisfied. They would want more. And that really becomes a picture of the nature of the flesh. Solomon began to build things and gather things together. He would start collecting things. Then he began to have wives and concubines going well against the wisdom of God. And this, of course, brought a lot of compromise into his life. Much of what we talked about in the last couple of studies is that Solomon had actually established for himself a laboratory where he asked the question, is life really worth living? And that has become somewhat of, a, of an anchor for us as we, as we study through this book of Ecclesiastes. Because in every page, God is answering that question. Is life really worth living? It is if we live that life for God, with God, and unto God. In verse 12 of Ecclesiastes chapter 2, Solomon continues on. And today he deals with disappointment. The disappointment of labor that is done under the sun. He said, And I turned myself to behold wisdom and madness and folly. The word madness there actually has, has somewhat to do with, with some kind of crazy celebration. We see a lot of that in the world today, crazy celebrations of life. 
And then folly being foolishness. And then he asks the question, for what can the man do that cometh after the king? Even that which has been already done. That takes us back to verse 9 of chapter 1. The thing that has been, it is, it is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun. Verse 13, then I saw that wisdom excelleth folly. As far as light excelleth darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walketh in darkness. And I myself perceived also that one event happeneth to them all. Then said I in my heart, as it happeneth to the fool, so it happeneth even to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For there is no remembrance of the wise more than of the fool forever. Seeing that which now is in the days to come shall all be forgotten. And how dieth the wise man? As the fool. Therefore I hated life. Because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me. For all is vanity and vexation or troubling of spirit. There's a story told of a rich man who learned that he would die in a few days. He called his three friends, his doctor, a preacher, and an attorney to his bedside. The rich man said, The preacher has told me that you can't take your earthly riches with you, but I believe I have worked out a way so that I can. Doc tells me that I won't live long, so I have prepared three sealed envelopes, each containing $10,000. This was a long time ago. (laughs) That's pocket change for some rich people today. But he says, I've prepared three sealed envelopes, each containing $10,000. When I die, I want each of you to walk by the casket and drop in your envelope with the $10,000 each. A short time later, they attended the rich man's funeral. And those three men met together. The preacher said, well, I've got a confession to make. We've been needing to repair the organ in the church for a long time. And I took $2,000 out of Bill's envelope and, and used it on the organ. The doctor said, well, whew, this makes it easier for me because I took $5,000 out and used it for my new clinic and only dropped in the other $5,000. And the attorney, the attorney said, well, my conscience is clear. I did just what Bill had told us to do. I kept the envelope, picked up both of yours, and dropped in a check for the full amount of $30,000. Well, that's quite uh, (laughs) creative, I would say. But the moral of the story is that many people have tried to take their riches with them. And they've come to realize that they can't. Every time they try to do something of that sort, it's always in vain. 
It's a worthless thing to do. Literally, figuratively, however, you can't take it with you. Death holds many mysteries for some people. But it is certainly something that we all have to face. Yet for those not willing to face the truth about it, it can be confusing. And it can even be misunderstood. Take, for example, a a quote that I found about death, written by the author Gertrude Stein, who said, Anyone not coming to be a dead one before coming to be an old one comes to be an old one and comes then to be a dead one as any old one comes to be a dead one. End quote. Okay, figure that one out for yourselves. (laughs) She's also one that uh, is, is, is known for writing things like, Rose is a rose is a rose is a rose, and there is nothing there there. Go figure. She was well known as a writer. (laughs) But as much as man has tried to make sense of life, so much more has man tried to make sense of death. Hold on to that thought about death for just a moment. In Solomon's continuing search for answers to the question, is life really worth living? He stumbled over and upon the great frustrations of trying to live life without God and his divine involvement. His struggles revealed personal insecurities and inconsistencies with all that he saw under the sun. Remember that that phrase means under the sun being living life without God. In seeking out the meaning of life, he discovered only despair and frustration. Eventually, all he did was void of purpose. Solomon went from helplessness to hopelessness, and then took great pains to hide the truth, but found no satisfaction even in that. Wisdom in and of itself was was not enough. Laughter and pleasure was nothing short of maddening. Wine, women, and song led him to a greater boredom. He built to find satisfaction, as we saw and read last week. He built to find satisfaction. He collected things from around the world. But these things were not enough. For those of you who are film buffs, you may remember in the movie Citizen Kane... The character that Orson Welles played, Charles Foster Kane, was a man who had collected so much, built so much for himself. And yet, there was no satisfaction in any of it. Everything was boxed up. There were many scenes in that particular movie of things that were boxed up and ready to be put into museums. But his life reflected nothing. But thank the Lord that Solomon didn't hide the the truth of his own heart. He was discovering that happiness couldn't be found in sensual pleasures or even in practical pursuits. And so he decided to turn in another direction. 
to things yet unexplored in the areas of wisdom and folly, making three comparisons along the way. But generally speaking, as I said earlier, this whole section here deals with the disappointment of laboring under the sun. We'll get to those three points here in just a moment. So going back to verse 12, Solomon said, And I turned myself to behold wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do that cometh after the king? Even that which hath been already done. Then I saw that wisdom excelleth folly. As far as light excelleth darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walketh in darkness. And I myself perceived also that one event happened or happeneth to them all. That, of course, is speaking of death. Then said I in my heart, as it happeneth to the fool, so it happeneth even to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart that, This also is vanity. For there is no remembrance of the wise more than of the fool forever. Seeing that which which now is in the days to come shall all be forgotten. And how dieth the wise man? As the fool. And therefore I hated life. And by the way, that statement that he makes, therefore I hated life, was not really from from a suicidal point of view. It was that he was looking at life, but unsatisfied with what he saw when trying to put this wisdom and madness and folly all together. I hated life because the work that, I, that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me. For all is vanity and vexation of spirit. It was as if he was asking the question, why this kind of labor? Yet knowing the answer all along, the answer all along was, we live in a fallen world because of sin. The first thing that Solomon deals with here in this particular section is that he compares wisdom to foolishness. He's comparing wisdom to foolishness. Who who could come after the king who had such a vast mind and treasure? I mean, Solomon was the king. Solomon was the one who had been given the wisdom granted him by God. So no one but himself could determine his own destiny. But he could choose to be wise, or as it is said, to just let it all hang out. Now that's an interesting phrase, because its original meaning is to behave freely without being shy or feeling worried about what other people will think of you. And that's what uh, Solomon had come to in his life. Now Solomon does make it clear that that wisdom is much better than folly. And that there is definitely value in wisdom as he writes uh, in Proverbs chapter 14 in verses 6 through 8. In a time when he was writing from the wisdom of God to his son that his son would understand and know the wisdom of God. He said in Proverbs 14, 6, A scorner seeketh wisdom and findeth it not. Somebody who scoffs at the things of God, you see, will seek wisdom, but he will not find it. Just stop there for just a moment and think about all of these, quote-unquote, you know, wise college and university professors 
who do their best to try to uh, brainwash their, their, their students immediately that the, as they come into their classes that there is no God. And so a scorner who seeks wisdom, he's not going to find it. Not true wisdom. But Solomon goes on and he says, A scorner seeketh wisdom and findeth it not, but knowledge is easy unto him that understandeth. In other words, one who humbles himself to the wisdom of God will understand it. Go from the presence of a foolish man when thou perceivest not in him the lips of knowledge. Maybe more people should be running away from these universities rather than wanting to get into them. And think about verse 8. The wisdom of the prudent is to understand his way. But the folly of fools is deceit. The wise person walks through life with his eyes in the right place and wide open. This is what, this is what uh, Solomon is saying in verse 14. And follow along with what's going on here. The wise person walks through life with his eyes in the right place wide open. The fool is blind and he doesn't see clearly never knowing what's coming next. Jesus, for example, called the Pharisees. Now you would think the Pharisees, here, here were the religious leaders of the time. Here, the, here were the, the leaders of, of the Jewish people who were, who were saying, listen, you know, we need to get back to the law of God. And yet Jesus calls them blind leaders of the blind. And consider when he says that in Matthew chapter 15 for just a moment. He says in Matthew 15, verse 10, well, it says here uh, by Matthew, and he called the multitude and said unto them, Jesus said, hear and understand, not that which goeth into the mouth defileth a man, but that which cometh out of the mouth, this defileth a man. Then came his disciples and said unto him, knowest thou that the Pharisees were offended after they heard this saying? Yeah, they were offended because, because Jesus said, Not that which goeth into the mouth defileth a man. These Pharisees were proud in the fact that they were keeping the dietary laws, that they were, you know, they, they would never, you know, take anything that was unclean. But Jesus knew their hearts, that this pride in that very, very same thought did not prevent them from being foolish in their way of thinking and their way of speaking certain things that would actually get them more in trouble than not. And so Jesus answered them and said, Every plant which my Father, which my heavenly Father has not planted, shall be rooted up. Let them alone. They be blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. They have no light. Jesus came unto his own, and his own received him not. Getting back to Solomon. What is it that he discovers in his pursuits? Both the wise and the foolish will be hit by the same outcome. That's what he discovers. Both the wise and the foolish will be hit by the same outcome. What is that outcome? Death. So what about that costly education? What has it gotten some people? Some people have degrees upon degrees and cannot find work. 
I know that right now in the days and times in which we're living with this, this coronavirus uh, pandemic and, and this, this worldwide uh, fear that's been going on, these lockdowns that we've been going through, jobs being uh, suspended, that has become more real. But even when we have a good economy going, there have been those who have, have really struggled to find work based upon whatever degrees that they've received. And so what's use, what use is all of this wisdom? Or should we just call it man's wisdom and man's understanding, man's intellect? Will we, ever, will we even be remembered for what we've learned? Well, a lot of people have been remembered. I mean, we still talk about Plato and Socrates and, and, uh, and others. That's something that we see there in verse 16. For there is no remembrance of the wise more than of the fool forever. We might remember them what they've said by historical records and, and, and history itself. But let's also remember they're gone. And let's face it. Most people want to be remembered for who they were or what they've done. And we want to remember them too. Solomon is very much remembered, isn't he? He's remembered because God has used him. In fact, God has inspired him to write what he wrote in Proverbs as well as here in Ecclesiastes. Just as he inspired David to write the Psalms. And many others, of course, all the writers of Scripture. We remember them well. We remember the good and the bad. We remember the struggles and the trials, as well as the victories. But let's remember this. If we remember anything tonight, remember this. Remember that tombstones aren't made of cardboard. They're made of granite. We don't paste names on stones with tape. We carve names in stone to last. And this is the reason why Solomon just hated life and said it was worthless. Despair has set in, along with distress and disgust and disappointment. Man wants to be remembered if he's done any good at all in the world. How different is the heart that says, the only thing I want to remember is that Jesus Christ came and saved me from my sin and gave me eternal life. So, this all may be true. This all may be true of life strictly lived under the sun. But it is not true of work or labor that is done as unto the Lord. As the Apostle points out in, uh, in Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. Where he says, and whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. Knowing that, the Lord, knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. You know, it's time for us as believers in Jesus Christ, and I, th I think that, that, that uh, this, this, this lockdown, as we've said often in the past few weeks, that there is, there is one very good thing about all of this in that it has awakened the church. 
It has awakened the church to look at things more intently that belong to the issues of, of God and of Christ, or the word of God. To look at them as to how they apply to us and in our lives. Rather than, than be complacent, you know, going from, you know, week to week, one, you know, one service to another, from one week to another, or, or twice a week in church, or sometimes no, no church at all until certain occasions rise up. That was complacency. Now we, we realize, we, we've come to grips with the very fact that, you know, something's happening. Something that we've been talking about for a long, long time. And believing that, you know, it's, it's going to lead to the coming of Jesus Christ. And we've got to get ourselves ready and we've got to get ourselves right. So whatever it is that we're going to do between now and the time of Christ's coming and his return, what, we ever, what it is that we do, we must do as unto him, as unto the Lord, and not unto man. Because we don't serve man, we serve the Lord Christ. So that, in, in, a, in a nutshell, is comparing wisdom with, with folly. It's foolishness to live our lives without Christ. Foolishness. And it's foolish for a believer to set aside Christ as if to say that their wisdom is, is greater without Christ than with his wisdom in our lives. Let's always remember this. He's wise, we're not. But he'll grant us his wisdom as we surrender and submit ourselves to his truth, to his wisdom, and to his word. Secondly, Solomon compared daily labor to the inevitable. Now he compares labor to death. He says in verse 18, Yea, I hated all my labor, which I had taken under the sun. So notice, if you will, in that very statement, what, what Solomon is saying as a believer in God, as one who had a calling from his God to be the king of Israel in Jerusalem, to be the one who was to lead by wisdom. He says, yea, I hated all my labor, which I had taken under the sun, under the sun as if without God. Because I should leave it unto the man that shall be after me. And who knoweth whether he shall be a wise man or a fool? Now you have to be considering that as he's writing this, he's talking about his own son. Yet shall he have rule over all my labor wherein I have labored, and wherein I have showed myself wise under the sun? This also is vanity. This also is worthless and empty and insufficient and futile. Verse 20. Therefore I went about to cause my heart to despair of all the labor which I took under the sun. For there is a man whose labor is in wisdom and in knowledge and in equity. Yet to a man that hath not labored therein shall he leave it for his portion, this also is vanity and a great evil. 
So our immediate thoughts after reading that passage would turn to Solomon's son, Rehoboam, whose foolish actions as king would lead to the division of Israel. Of course, we know that that was prophesied by Nathan to to David. Not in his son Solomon, but after Solomon, a nation would be divided. Then it would not just be the nation of Israel, it would be now Israel and Judah. But this was a lesson certainly taught to Solomon by his own father David. The lesson of foolish actions. In Psalm 39, verse 6, David writes, Surely every man walketh in a vain show. Surely they are disquieted in vain. He heapeth up riches and knoweth not who shall gather them. That's what he's teaching here. The fact that you're going to do all this labor on this earth, and eventually you're going to turn it over to someone else. Well... Paul reminds us of something as well, and I think that it goes hand in hand with, with what Solomon is saying. In, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 7 through 10, and by the way, Timothy is, is Paul's son in the faith. So just consider, you know, how in the Lord we also pass things to others. But, but notice what Paul says to Timothy in verse uh, Verse 7 of 1 Timothy 6, he says, For we, we brought nothing into this world, and it's, it is certain we can carry nothing out. In other words, you can't take it with you. And having food and raiment, let us be there with content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Now, let me just interject here that that doesn't mean that every person that is rich and has abundance will fall into those traps. And I say that because there are going to be some people who don't have the riches but act as if they do, and they'll fall into those traps. That, again, is what happens under the sun. And here's the reason why, verse 10, for the love of money. Notice, not money, but the love of money is the root of all evil. Which, while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. I wonder how many people today who have erred from the faith in this manner in pursuing riches, because they've been told that they're supposed to pursue riches as believers in Jesus Christ, are really preparing people for the sorrows that are ahead. There may not be certain sorrows presently, but there will be some sorrows later. This is why we need to be serious about God's word, about everything that God's word says. Anybody can take verses out of Scripture, not a, you know, out of context, I should say. They can take Scripture out of context and say, well, see, you know, we, we, should, uh, we should be rich and, and have everything that we want. Misinterpreting the Scripture. 
But getting back to the point that we are wanting to make, man can labor. A man can strategize. Man can plan and man can sacrifice. Man can worry and skip meals and vacations in all of his labor. Merely to give to those who follow after them, those who do not have the same dreams and ambitions. That is what happens under the sun. It is in cases like these that irresponsibility is bred. And that usually happens to those who get something for nothing. Somewhere down the line, dedication will be replaced by greed. And Solomon says, it's just not worth it. It's just not worth it. And then Solomon does this. He compares daily work to evening rest. In verses 22 through 26. He says, For what hath man of all his labor, and of the vexation of his heart, the the troublesome nature of his heart, wherein he has labored under the sun? For all his days are sorrows, and his travail grief. Yea, his heart taketh not rest in the night. This is also vanity. There is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw that it was from the hand of God. Take note of that. Underline that little phrase in your Bible. For who can eat? Or who else can hasten hereunto more than I? For God giveth to a man that is good in his sight wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he giveth travail to gather and to heap up, that he may give to him that is good before God. This also is vanity and vexation of spirit. Let's try to understand this now. Solomon then figured out that if he worked hard in the day, he could then take time off at night to rest while preparing his family for what they had to look forward to with their, with their inheritance, with what he was going to hand down. But even this he found to be futile. For consider this question. How many workaholics do you know ever rest how many workaholics rest how many of them leave their work at the office you've oftentimes heard that uh, encouragement you know what leave leave your work at the office go home and enjoy your family go home and enjoy uh, your kids and whatnot but how many workaholics leave their work at the office most of them don't How many of them really care about the future of those to follow them? Which would, of course, include their their sons and daughters, even grandkids. The headaches continue as long as God is not allowed involvement in in those 
people's lives. Solomon's discovery is quite insightful and it's quite significant. First of all, he realizes that there is nothing in man, nothing inherent in man that makes it possible to gain enjoyment and purpose from the things that we do. It all comes down to the heart. It all comes down to the heart and it comes down to where the heart is and who really rules and reigns in the heart. Paul, without even mentioning the heart of man, does say this in in Romans 7, verses 18 through 20. Yet you see the heart through this whole passage. He says, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Now, if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Where would that sin dwell, you see? But the heart is clearly meant when when we read in Genesis and Jeremiah these verses, Genesis 6, verse 5. uh, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That is fallen man. That is man stained with sin. That is man who lives on this earth under the sun without God. And for the most part, by choice. That every imagination of the thoughts of his heart. See, we would say, well, I thought thoughts were in the mind. Well, let's remember this. That we have to be careful of what we think. For it reveals what is in our hearts. Jeremiah 17, verses 9 and 10 say, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. God tests our hearts. Proves us. Which, by the way, is a good thing. Not a bad thing. Our greatest joy has come in knowing the love of Jesus Christ. We can can begin to appreciate and love the work that we do because we have a different viewpoint. We have a different heart because he has given us a new heart and a new mind. He's given us new guidance, new direction from all of the old that was leading us under the sun away from God. There is joy in the Lord. There is happiness in the Lord. There is blessedness in the Lord. In the Lord. And nowhere else. It is the Lord that reveals these things to Solomon. 
And what he has revealed to Solomon is this. Riches do not satisfy. But who can eat and who can have enjoyment without God? A lot of people think that they're doing that. That they're they're enjoying, you know, going out and, you know, eating and drinking and being merry. And in the end... Because only God knows their hearts. He knows that they're not happy. And he knows that they're not fulfilled. As believers in Jesus Christ, we know this very moment that if he were to come this very moment for any of us, whether individually or together, we would be fulfilled. Because we're not not filled with the world. We are filled with the knowledge of Christ. We are filled with the person of Christ. We are filled with the spirit of Christ. We are filled with the wisdom of Christ and the word of Christ. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom. Let the peace of Christ, the peace of God dwell in you. These these are the things that make the biggest difference for us and between us and those in this world. And this is truly the context of verses 24 through 26 of Ecclesiastes 2. There is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw that it was from the hand of God. If we recognize that it's from God, if we recognize that whatever little we may have or whatever much we may have been given and granted, it's all from God. It's not from us. It's not from anyone else. And then he goes on and says, For who can eat or who else can hasten here unto more than I? For God giveth to a man. To a man that is good. For God giveth to a man. Wisdom. And knowledge and joy. But to the sinner he giveth travail. Everything that a sinner will do who rejects God and rejects Christ and rejects the word of God and rejects the things of God, the things that God has wanted to give to all. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That the sinner he giveth travail to gather and to heap up that he may give to him that is good before God. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. Unless God, and ultimately Jesus Christ, unless God is in the midst of our labor and rest, lasting peace and joy is impossible. It is impossible. Those who are right with God will benefit from the labors of others, or the labor of others. Take, for example, The French agnostic Voltaire, well, more than likely it was a French atheist, but nonetheless, Voltaire believed that through his own enlightened writings and humanistic philosophy, that Christianity would crumble. In fact, this was his avowed goal. This is the goal that he made for himself to his very last breath, that he would destroy Christianity. And bring it to naught. 
Well, after Voltaire's death, his home became a publishing house for Bibles. Go figure. A mansion was built many years ago in Colorado Springs for the wife of a very wealthy man. But his wife didn't even want to live there. In fact, she never lived in any of its 35 rooms. I've been to that, uh, that house there in Colorado Springs. It, it was later sold to a little and unknown Christian organization that came to be known as the Navigators. A house built for one person to be happy in. And there was no happiness. And God took it and did something great with it, at least for a time. What should our perspective be about life? Even we Christians can take a, a bad road once in a while that leads to a dead end. Have, have you been there? I, I know I have. Sometimes we don't want to admit these things, but yeah, it happens to us. We can go off-roading, as it were. And so we must do nothing without Jesus Christ because we know the pain of getting off track. We know the pain of, of getting off the path of righteousness, to getting off the way that leads to life. And it really can become a very horrendous experience. God is patient and, and helpful along the way, wanting us to come back, urging us to come back. But our stubbornness many times keeps us on that. In that, in that stubborn attitude. Because we want to discover if there's more to life than what we see. James, in James chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, says every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And if indeed we are a kind of first fruits of his creatures, wouldn't you say that the benefits to us would be great. The very benefits that James mentions in the previous verse, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights. I want to close with this passage in 1 Timothy. We were there earlier, but let me take you back to 1 Timothy 6. Close with these particular verses. That would be verses 17 through 19. And I want you to listen carefully to what Paul tells Timothy here. Toward the end of that letter. Speaking of the church that Timothy would be uh, overseeing. He said, charge them that are rich in this world. 
that they be not high-minded. In other words, that they be not arrogant or conceited. Nor trust, notice this, nor trust in uncertain riches. But in the living God. There, there are a lot of people that trust in uncertain riches today. Though the ones that like to do a lot of gambling type of thing. Those are uncertain riches. Some may acquire some of it. I've known some people that have actually have, have, have gotten some major uh, prizes and then before you know it, they're pretty much gone. They put their trust in uncertain riches. Paul goes on and he says, Trust in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. All things to enjoy. That they do good. That they be rich in good works. Ready to distribute. Willing to communicate. Laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come. Wow, I would say that that is a pretty good statement for the day and time we're living That we keep in mind that we are in the last days. That we keep in mind that the, the day of Christ is, is approaching. And it's approaching very quickly. And whatever we do, we are to lay up in store a good foundation against the time to come. That they may lay hold on eternal life. In other words, whatever it is that we have. Whatever it is that God has blessed us with. Always remember that there is a connection to eternity. This is the reason why Jesus said, don't lay up your treasures on earth. Lay up your treasures in heaven. Because even what God has given us here, or what God has provided for us, he's done so with eternity in mind. We can't take it with us, as we've already known, learned, But what we can do is we can use it for God's glory, for God's grace, to honor our God in helping to meet the needs of those who have not and to encourage them to do whatever they are able to do to take care of themselves eventually. God has given us that very responsibility and we are accountable as believers in Jesus Christ to him. In conclusion, even mature believers can get caught up in the trap of materialism, working and living for the next pay raise, promotion, or purchase. We want to be recognized and rewarded for our efforts and achievements, and nothing is wrong with that. But all the while, we need to keep God's face before us, asking ourselves if God is truly at the center of our lives. If we are not sensing deep satisfaction, fulfillment, and joy, perhaps we've taken our eyes off of God and are living for ourselves. 
Well, let's, let's close with this. I, I forgot I had one more passage of Scripture. There's always one more passage. Well, this is it. Let's close with a statement that was made by, by a grieving Job who had just heard the news of, of the loss of his property, the loss of his livestock, the loss of his riches, and the loss of his children. And you would wonder, how would I be able to say anything? How would I be able to respond after that great tragedy? And yet, listen to this. Job chapter 1, verses 20 through 22. We'll close with this for sure. Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head a sign of mourning and grieving, fell down upon the ground and worshipped and said, and here's what he said, naked came I out of my mother's womb and naked I shall, shall I return thither. The Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away Blessed be the name of the Lord. The last thing mentioned in that verse, in that chapter, is this statement. In all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. What a statement that Job makes. He worships God. And he looks at the gross reality of his life in the presence of Almighty God. Naked came out of my mother's womb. I had nothing when I got here. Naked shall I return thither. I take nothing with me. The Lord gave. The Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be Hashem, the name. Blessed be our God, who has given us everything we need for life and for godliness through our Lord and our Savior. Jesus Christ, who is our everything, our all and in all.